Hello. Welcome. This is of Monsters and Crime, and I'm here to provide you with all of your true crime attempted comedy needs via podcasting your ear hole. Any content that you're looking for that involves true crime and questionable comedy, hi, I'm here. I've got the audio version to please you, so stop asking. Uh, tonight I'm drinking uh, a Lindemann's framboise, perhaps it's pronounced that way, it's French, um, which means raspberry in French. It's a raspberry lambic beer. It's really delicious. It's a uh, 750 milliliter bottle, came with a cork and everything, real fancy stuff. Uh, you guys should try it. Um, I decided against wine tonight because I have a dance performance tomorrow that I probably should not be hungover for. Um, so we'll try this out and see how it goes. Um, so I apologize in advance for my clankety clink that you might hear throughout this episode. Um, I don't have any current events because I, again, haven't really heard anything and haven't really been paying a whole lot of attention. Um, I just assume it's the same old shit every week. Uh, as far as stuff that I've been watching, I have been watching a lot of stuff lately. Thanks to my five gang, my stream gang, you know who you be, uh, Valley of the Damned, uh, we've watched a few episodes, um, basically that is, uh, it takes place like deep in the Colorado Rockies, it's a desolate region known as Prison Valley because it is home to 15 high security prisons and it's just stories about a um, series of murders that happen in the area and it features family members, police, witnesses, lawyers, um, and journalists just talking about all these murders in the area. Um, another TV show is uh, Panic and basically seniors compete in challenges it's not a documentary or anything it's a fictional show uh they compete in challenges called um it's an annual panic competition it's called panic um and winning gets you money and it gives them an opportunity to get out of their small town um, but there's a lot of risk involved it's pretty good so check that out uh, also, Cruel Summer, it's set in the 90s. A girl goes missing. There's lots of weird and sus shit that happens. Uh, it's a little groomy. Um, it involves an older man and a high school girl. Um, but give it a watch. Uh, also, Missing 411. Um, one is about, like, eerie disappearances of five children from, I believe they're all from national parks, but it's these families like go camping or what have you and um, kids just go missing. Uh, the other one that we watched is Hunted. It's called Hunted, Missing 411 Hunted. It's uh, hunters disappearing without a trace. Um, real mysterious shit there. Um, couple movies. Um, I don't feel home 
I don't feel at home in this world anymore. And it stars Melanie Linsky, which the name might not ring a bell, but she's super cute and she's in like Two and a Half Men, if you ever watched that. Um, She plays Rose, who is the guy's neighbor, and she's Charlie's stalker. Um, She's also plays she plays a small role in Coyote Ugly. I don't really know what else she's been in. I think she's in um, fuck, I can't remember it, but some animated um, series. Um, But it's good. She's burglarized, and her and her crazy neighbor. Um, who's played by Elijah Wood. They set out to find the thief, and um, lots of shit happens, and it's just, it was pretty funny. Uh, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, which is a classic one. It's got Joe Pesci. Uh, and then another classic that is one of my favorites that I'll watch a million times, uh, L.A. Confidential. So uh, lots of recommendations tonight you're bored or not bored just want something to watch something new I didn't know if I was going to address this or not but I think that I am and uh, it was from our uh, first episode I just have a small correction so the Joshua Tree episode um, it was brought to my attention that some names were uh, mixed up a little bit and whatever it happens I mean shit happens we're human but I'm going to correct it um, so Haina is the stepdaughter and Siobhan was the girlfriend who assisted in the murder so there we cleared the air on that one moving on uh, so Tonight, I'm doing uh, The Murder of Angel Melendez, a.k.a. The Party Monster Murder. Uh, This is, it was a pretty um, big thing back in the 90s. There was a movie made in 2003 called Party Monster that was based off of this story. Not really the story, this murder in particular, but more the life of... uh, the individual who did the murder. Uh, so Party Monster stars Macaulay Culkin. Um, there's so much online about this, but some of the resources that I used are, uh, it's called Party Monster, the Shockumentary. It was uh, made in 1998. Um, and then there's an American Justice about this. And this story was huge when it happened. There's so much on this one. So let's fucking time and place this motherfucker. It's the 1980s, New York City. These crazy mega dance clubs like Studio 54 are all the rage for the rich assholes who want to see and be seen. Um, They want to hobnob and do designer drugs and shit. And it's like all the rich, famous people are all the rage. So going to these clubs meant seeing legit celebrities like Cher, Andy Warhol, Mick Jagger. Um, Getting on the guest list was really hard. So it, it wasn't for nobodies. Like you had to be somebody or be really hot to get on the guest list. 
But in 1987, the economy crashed, uh, interest rates increased, blah, 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 all the things that happen when an economy crashes happened, um, like debt accumulated in the 1980s, started to catch up with people. Uh, in 1987, the death of Andy Warhol, um, it, it kind of, that era kind of came to an end. So mega clubs started closing down, smaller clubs started popping up, replacing them, and they were like, fuck the Reagan era, values of excess. Um, also remember that this is pre-Rudy Giuliani, New York, so... This is kind of a fucking trash fire. Like, there are literal piles of garbage on the streets. Not so many cops. It was, like, urban, anything goes, um, insanity. Like, be yourself or, you know, be a homeless person on crack. You didn't go there for tourist stuff, and nobody was really being tough on crime. Um, so in 1984... Into this party club scene world comes 17-year-old kid from South Bend, Indiana. Uh, he arrives and starts hosting small events, and his name is Michael uh, Alig. He says he knew he was gay since he was a kid. He felt like he never fit in in South Bend, Indiana, which uh, wasn't very tolerant, though I don't feel it was very tolerant anywhere during that time. Um, but he was effeminate. Um, his youth was spent being bullied. His father was disapproving, which leads him to abandoning him. And his mother seems like she's fucking obsessed with him. Like she talks about him in the doc in the shockumentary. Uh, and his mother just adored him. So here's how to picture him. Um, the movie Party Monster, he's played by Macaulay Culkin perfectly. Like he's the skinny, gawky kid, and his mother describes him as an ornery little fellow and an instigator, so always kind of a troublemaker. He moved to New York and finally comes out of the closet and can be his weirdo self that he's always trying to hide. So Michael begins to frequent these anything-goes clubs like Tunnel um, with a band of these misfit kids. They're all outsiders. They're fringe people from small towns who came to look for a group that would accept them. And it's almost like now you would think of art students, like a bunch of fucking artsy, fuck everything people. Um, but they had this playground in, in New York City in the 80s to do anything with. Um, and when you were trying to be cool in the 80s and 90s, like you had to go out and earn it. There was no internet back then. There was no social media, there were no influences like that, so you had to go out and earn it. Um, so they're given the moniker Club Kids. It's a mini movement of outlandishly dressed partygoers. Um, they got their inspiration from punk, S&M, and clown styles, which I got from one article, which is kind of perfect. Um, they look like circus freaks from the future trying to look like vintage circus freaks um and to me that says you did your drugs before you got ready like instead of getting ready to go out and do your drugs on your way out you did your drugs at like 3 p.m and then you started going well what if i paint my whole head red but 
here's the thing. Apparently drugs weren't big at the beginning of this whole movement. Um, early videos that you can find online, they show them drinking a lot of like vodka and orange juice and drugs weren't really part of the scene at the beginning. Um, it was just kind of like performance art that fueled them, like maybe a bump here and there. Um, but just like, here's my crazy outfit. Fuck you. Just very fuck you performance art driven. They wore over-the-top outfits that were often homemade uh, or from thrift stores. Um, and one person just fucking wore a chicken mascot costume. Like, to me, that's not getting very creative, but, you know, it worked. Um, so Michael was accompanied by people like RuPaul, Amanda Lepore, and James St. James, who were uh, big into this um, club kids slash drag scene. Um they made up names for themselves. There was one girl named Jenny Talia, which obviously I love that name. Uh, there was Ernie the Pea Drinker, Junkie Jonathan, and Woody the Dancing Amputee. Uh, they would push boundaries of drag and fashion, like I mentioned. Um, and Club Kids were led by Michael Alig, who was the king of the Club Kids, and his mentor slash rival, uh, who was equally flamboyant, was none other than James St. James. In uh, 1988, a Village Voice writer and frequent party guest, Michael Musto, wrote about the club kids. He wasn't as flamboyant. Um, he was just a dude that hung out and wrote about them. So he wrote, they were terminally superficial, have dubious aesthetic values, and are master manipulators, exploiters, and thank God, partiers. So the clit, clit, clit clubs, clit club, the clit club, club kids, club kids, aesthetic emphasized the outrageous fabulousness, gender fluid was a thing, uh, not everyone was gay, um, but their scene had an LGBT bend and was popular with drag queens. Um, they were like, we finally have our own place. It was lots of small town people who could just be themselves. And this was in the midst of the AIDS epidemic. Um, this may have helped drive the party scene because Michael is quoted saying, there was a prevailing sense that you and your friends may not be around next week. So enjoy the now. We party too hard, drink too much, and laugh too loud. The group became an artistic and fashion-conscious youth culture. Um, it was all experimental, became a force with the media. Um, Michael and the club kids appear to ha um, appeared on several talk shows. Um, Geraldo was actually one of them, which you can see in the movie Party Monster. You also probably could still find a lot of these online. In 1990, the biggest club owner in the city puts Michael in charge as a promoter um, for a string of downtown clubs, which included this club called the Limelight. So Michael started throwing these lavish parties that were paid for. Um, he would pick a theme, hire a DJ, make sure all his fabulous friends would show up, and some of them would actually be paid to show up. So. When all of his wild friends would show up with the painted redheads and diapers and nipples X'd out with electrical tape, candles stuck on their head, 
all these people wanted to go to these clubs and watch them. Um, you know, they we also love people who don't give a fuck. Like, what a relief it is when you see people like that, you know? So Michael Musto, again, from The Village Voice, talks a little bit about um, how before this, everyone was on their best behavior and how they wanted to look the coolest and be the coolest. And then Michael came along and he was just kind of a dick. Like he'd pee in people's drinks and make people drink it. And he actually got hepatitis and made it into a party and tried to kiss as many people as he could. He just did not care about anyone and everyone kind of loved that about him. He'd draw crowds to these venues. Um, They'd have what now we would call flash mobs, um, but they called them outlaw parties. They'd show up to like a Dunkin' Donuts or a Burger King and just take over and have a fun party and put music on and just take over the whole place. Um, They did it actually one in the subway and they would do it until the cops would come and then they'd go to this club that was already completely ready for them. There was a pee drinker, a woman who went on stage and gave herself a champagne enema. Nothing like a little flora and fauna in your gut, right? Uh, Do not try that at home, please. Uh, But it was just performance art, but in a club setting. Then ecstasy came along, and as Michael explains it, it felt like a drug for people who didn't do drugs because it wasn't some, like, fucking cut, crazy, snorty drug. It was, like, pharmaceutical-made in a lab, and it made you feel spiritual, and it made it feel like you weren't doing drugs. Um, So Michael and his followers then start using drugs heavily, which is what happens when you party for a living. Um... Michael begins adding drug dealers to the payroll, actually, to Limelight payroll. And they all become addicted to drugs like Coke, Rehypnol, which is Rufi's, and uh, Special K, or Ketamine. Um, And eventually, everyone's fucking favorite, heroin. So one of these club kids was named Andre Melendez, and his club kid uh, name was Angel. He wore these ornate, beautiful angel wings, and that was just his thing. Uh, He immigrated from Columbia to New York as a child and lived in Queens. And like Michael, he was just trying to make a name for himself, and he found the club kids as a good place to do it. Um, He wanted to be accepted by Michael especially and the club kids. And to do so, he started dealing drugs as his ticket in. Angel idolized Michael, and Michael took advantage of that, but Angel let him get away with it a lot. Um, He stole drugs from him. One account from James St. James um, says that during a snowstorm, they broke into Angel's stash and did three to four thousand dollars worth of drugs. Like, holy shit, that's a lot of drugs. And James St. James was like, how are you going to tell Angel? And Angel walks in and Michael's like, we did all your drugs. Like, fuck you, do something about it. And after a while, you just don't give a fuck. You just want the drugs. Uh, It does sound like he had some narcissistic tendencies um, to begin with. Um, Then you put drugs and fame and goodbye. Like, you just don't give a shit. Like, hey, it's me from the limelight. You can't get in here without me. 
just arrogance. Um, and he had a lot of control because of that. Escalating drug use and overdoses and more cases of AIDS uh, among the club kids kind of starts. And then new mayor Rudy Giuliani's crackdown on nightlife in Manhattan leads to the beginning of the end of the club kids. In September 1995, Limelight is raided by federal agents and it was shut down. They were using drugs so openly, like you'd just walk in and get a bump of coke. So Angel was working at the club and he gets fired. He was pissed about that. He thinks he's owed money. And uh, by 1996, Michael is a full-blown junkie, shooting heroin every day. And as his addiction grows, so does his demand for drugs from Angel. And Angel becomes resentful and he feels used. Um, Angel could no longer get into limelight anymore. And that also pisses him off, you know, because he was a drug dealer on the payroll it got shut down, so and he was fired, so he was no longer allowed there. Um, so he was kind of pushed out of the club kids scene. Uh, you all really should watch the shockumentary. It's called. It's literally called Party Monster: The Shockumentary. I think it's from 1998, but it starts off like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, cool, smart kids, like leading this incredible revolution. And by the end, it's like dark circles under their eyes. No one is smiling and just addicted to drugs. And it's really sad. Um, around this time, uh, Michael Alig throws a theme party called Blood Feast. And it's named after a horror movie that he loved as a child and he watched with his mother as a child. So his mother was obsessed with watching horror movies and watched them with him quite often. Not unlike this bitch here. I don't quite watch horror movies, but I mean, I've got podcasts going and they definitely are into some horror shit that kids at their age probably shouldn't be. I don't want to say shouldn't be. Because I think it's cool. But most kids at their age aren't into that kind of stuff. So in the movie Blood Feast, this dude kills people and then dismembers them. And in the flyer for the event, Jenny Talia is holding a hammer to Michael's head. And it's all like bloody and gross. And there's a phrase that says, legs cut off. And all other kinds of phrases on there. On Sunday, March 17th, 1996, Angel shows up to Michael and his roommate Freeze. Uh, he shows up to their apartment, shows up at about 9 in the morning. No one has slept. They've been doing drugs all night. And Angel is pissed and trying to track down this money that he's owed. An argument ensues between Angel and Michael, and it becomes violent. And this is all according to Freeze and Michael. Obviously, no one's told Angel's side of the story because Angel is the only one who could have done it. So take this with various levels of spice. Um, so he pins Michael. Michael calls for help. So Freeze grabs a hammer and hits him over the head three times. 
and he gets disoriented, but he's still pissed off and he's still alive. So Freeze grabs him from behind and there's a bunch of stories like from Michael and Freeze. So it's really hard to know which one they're sticking with. Um, but Michael grabs something, either like a pillow or a sweatshirt, and he smothers him and he dies. Um, and then depending on whose story, Michael grabs some kind of chemical or a cleanser or Drano or something and he puts it down Angel's throat and fucking uses duct tape to duct tape his mouth shut. And at this point, I think he's already fucking dead, thank God. Um, but Michael later says it's because he wanted to cover up the smell. But it's, like I said, hard to know what really happened because there's different stories um, from both of them. Oh, shit. I was just pouring myself another glass and I totally party fouled. Uh, this stuff gets pretty like frothy and foamy and bubbles up and I poured a little too much and a little too fast and it just kind of went over the top of the glass. Uh, so whoopsies. So Freeze and Michael strip the body, put it in a bathtub, and they cover it with chemicals to mask the smell. And it stays there for five days until Freeze purchases some chef's knives and a cleaver from Macy's. I just imagine the person at Macy's, like in the home department or whatever, person that sold it to him, like, thanks and enjoy your dinner. And it's like a guy with a lightning bolt across his face with heroin junkie eyes and like a needle sticking out of his arm. And he's all, thanks, I'm making salad. Tell your friends. Like, I don't know. That's just how I imagine it. Uh, so Michael's like, okay, I'll take care of this. Get me 10 bags of heroin so I can get as fucked up as possible. Like, I don't want to be conscious for this. And he actually says, and I was kind of hoping I would die of a heroin overdose. Like, no doubt. I don't blame you, dude. I wouldn't want to be conscious or remember any of that shit. Um, and he's on all this heroin, and he removes his legs, just like the Blood Feast movie, wraps them in garbage bags, and places them in a duffel bag, and dumps them into the Hudson River. They do sink. Um... And then the next day, he wraps the rest of the body in a sheet and plastic garbage bag and places it in a cardboard box. They then take it down to a waiting taxi and put it in the trunk. And they drive uh, to the West Side Highway to the Hudson River. And by some instances, um, they have the taxi driver help them throw the box. Like, obviously, he doesn't know what's in it. Uh, but he helps them throw the box into the river and they watch as the box doesn't sink and just kind of floats off. Um, Angel was only 25 years old when he was murdered. Um, so he was super young. Um, like Michael can't keep quiet about it for some reason. I don't know if he was bragging or felt guilty or what, but he tells people and rumors start flying and in the scene, they know what happened, and it becomes an open secret in the club 
uh, in the club community. However, they're all loyal as fuck to Michael, so they don't go to the police about it. So Angel's brother, Johnny, starts getting worried. Like, he doesn't hear from his brother, uh, so he's worried. And of course, they only have pagers back then. So he's not answering his fucking pages. Uh, Finally, he goes to the clubs to try to track down his brother, and he can't find him. He says that um, police barely bothered to fill out a missing persons report, and they didn't really give a shit, so he had to start investigating on his own. He started posting flyers of pictures of Angel all over New York, Um, and he actually breaks down in the shockumentary, and it's really fucking sad. So Michael spends the next few months high as fuck traveling in and out of the city. He's still throwing parties, but people aren't really uh, really going to them. And thankfully, with the help of the media, Johnny is able to get Angel's disappearance out. And it becomes front page news uh, articles in like New York Magazine and New York Post, which is like the biggest magazine for shit like this. Again, Michael Musto uh, posts a blind item in the Village Voice, which is like, Club Kid? Which Club Kid is murdered? And he's just horrified. Um, And that's the best way to deal with a murder, is just gossip. Just gossip it away. Um, And a month after the murder, there's a tropical storm. Uh Uh-oh. Uh, It makes everything wash up to shore, and a group of children at the beach in Miller Field in Staten Island discover a box containing the dismembered remains, um, which eight months later are linked to Angel. It took eight months uh, because he was misidentified at first as an Asian male at the morgue, and uh, partly also that the um, boroughs didn't communicate with each other. Um, So after a final identification, the police get involved, and Michael hadn't been questioned at all during this whole time, despite the rumors that were going around. Um, And he had fled to New Jersey at this point, which, like, you can't get away in New Jersey, dude. Nine months after the murder... Michael Ailig is arrested on December 5th, 1996, and Freeze is arrested the same day, and Freeze just talks immediately. Um, Ailig insisted to the police that he and Freeze killed Angel in self-defense and disposed the body in a panic, and he had pictures of bruises that he had on him after the fight, which apparently he went to a lawyer like a week later to take those photos. Um, now here's some weird things. Uh, prosecutors were hesitant to charge Michael with first degree murder because they had hoped he'd testify against his former boss, Peter Gation, who they had arrested for allowing drugs to be sold in his nightclub. So the feds want to get Peter Gation on all these fucking drug charges. So they don't want to throw the book at Michael because they need him to be a credible witness and If he's a first-degree murderer, they can't put him on the stand. It's pretty fucked up that they don't prioritize the murder as a worse crime than selling drugs in clubs. Uh, They eventually offer Michael and Freeze a plea deal, 
which is a sentence of 10 to 20 years if they accept the lesser charges of manslaughter, which they do. Uh, and a side note here, Peter Gation, uh, eventually all charges are dropped. So that shit didn't matter anyways. Like they had, it was pointless. Uh, on October 1st, 1997, they both pled guilty and sentenced to 20 years. Uh, Freeze was released after 13 years in 2010. And Michael becomes eligible for parole in October 2006. But he claims that the parole board... Okay, so maybe my, my math wasn't correct there. I don't know exactly what they each got... Uh, 10 to 20 years is what they got. So 13 years uh, is what Freeze gets and is released in 2010. And so going on, Michael becomes eligible for parole in October 2006, but he claims that the parole board watched the movie Party Monster that came out in 2003 that portrayed him very poorly and decided to keep him in after watching it. So he serves 17 years and is released on May 5th, 2014. Uh, the 2003 movie is based on the 1999 memoir Disco Bloodbath by none other than James St. James. Um, so Michael Alig is now 55 years old, and he says he does not like the way that he's portrayed in the movie because he says it's one-dimensional, uh, Angel Melendez would be 60 years old today, and that's the party monster murder of Angel Melendez. Uh, it was a pretty uh, infamous one. If you haven't watched Party Monster, you should. It's a really good movie. Uh, and then, obviously, the Party Monster shockumentary, if you're interested in that. Um, and the fact that he served his time, like, that rarely happens when it's a famous murder where the person goes to jail, serves their time, comes back out, and is, like, able to speak again. Um, and it's been really hard to track down what he's doing right now. It seems like he's trying, like, a bunch of fashion line and art and maybe trying to do club promotions, but it's hard to track down. Um I don't know. When when people are, like, able to dismember human beings, that's just so far beyond anywhere that I even want to think about being. It's just nightmarish to me. And it's really sad thinking about all the club kids now and looking back, they just went off the deep end. Like, it could have been a great movement and, I mean, it did influence so many people now, but back then, it, like, they just went off the deep end. Um, like, Lady Gaga wouldn't exist without this club movement, and Marilyn Manson was also influenced by the movement. And he's actually, uh, has a small role in the movie Party Monsters. That's really all that I have today, so I hope you enjoyed learning more about this. If you knew about it already or if it was something that was new to you um as always write in with stories or comments or questions 
or if you want to be a host, I mean a co-host, um, I do plan on having some co-hosts in the future. It's just been busy for everybody right now, so I've just been kind of doing this on my own until either things settle or we just um, find a time that works for anybody who wants to be on here. I have a couple people interested. I just need to find a time and a day that works for everyone. So again, write in. Um, I'll read any stories. If you have stories of like, uh, it doesn't even have to be murders, just any kind of crime. Like it can be stupid shit too. Like, I don't know, like there was a man living in an attic and like he was found. Like, I don't know, stuff that either is close to you or happened in your hometown or something like write in about anything. I'll read it. If you found crazy treasures in your fucking walls or something like that counts too. I'll do that too. Um, so again, the email address is of monsters and crime at gmail.com. And remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, and if you want to become a patron, uh, there's a Patreon link. It is www.patreon.com slash of monsters and crime. And until next time, bye.